The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Operator. This is Lois Lane. I want to report a murder. Only minutes before his death, Dr. Weninger produced diaries which he claimed contained evidence that would abort the impending induction of Barbara Trevino into the Rainforest Consortium. Barbara Trevino's en route to Metropolis now. She's got a meeting at the Trade Center tomorrow. She doesn't want to write this. Why doesn't she want to write it, Chief? Because I can't print it. You can't? No, she doesn't have the diaries. I may not have the diaries, but he told me what was in them. And I do have this one notebook. But, uh, yeah, it looks like Greek to me. That's because it is Greek. Yeah, Jimmy, check it out. Now look, Lois, a verbal statement's not worth the paper it's printed on. You follow what I'm saying here? Without the diaries, you don't have anything to check out. I hope one of the parts you trim back is this, where it says the killer took the diary. He did take them. Yeah, but how would you know that unless you were there? I was there. Yeah, but the killer doesn't know that unless you tell him. I, I'm not telling him. I mean, not exactly. Oh, they changed this. Minutes before his death to later in the day, just to be on the safe side. Part that says the man was dead. Can I keep that? Is that okay? Where are you going? I'm going back to Dr. Winninger's house. If I stay here any longer, I won't have any of my story left. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, October 5th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our show today, where our in-studio guest is a first-time guest for us on Just Right, and his name is Richard Raycraft. Welcome, Richard. Hello, thanks for having me on. Yes, and Richard is the news, sports, and spoken word director at CHRW 94.9 FM radio, and he'll be talking with us about his own journey into journalism. But before we begin that conversation, don't forget, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. So welcome, Richard. It's a pleasure to meet you, Herrick, because Bob and I have known you personally, because at one time, what seems like a very long time ago, you actually operated our show when we were broadcasting from CHRW Radio Western. So it's great to hear you here, and the reason we've asked you in is because I was commuting to work one day, tuning into the uh, Mother Corp, CBC, and I happened to hear you talking. And it was about a documentary, and it was uh, very captivating. And I wonder, first of all, if you can tell us what the documentary was about. It's a radio documentary. You are in radio. And how you got to uh, manage to get that with the CBC. Yes, thank you once again for having me on, guys. And uh, yes, I did push the buttons for the show back in the day for Just Right. My documentary was about Canadians who are joining Kurdish militias in Iraq and Syria to fight against ISIS in the Middle East. And I really wanted to do a radio documentary. I wanted to do a big radio project, but I didn't know what it was going to be. And then I saw an opportunity to pitch the CBC through what they call the Doc Project Mentorship Program. 
And that's for amateur radio producers to really get their first radio documentary on air at CBC, so on national radio. And with the Doc Project, they like to do things a little bit differently. You have to make the case that this is a Canadian story and you're the Canadian to tell it. You're, you have some sort of unique perspective into this issue. So with traditional journalism, of course, you're trying to be balanced and have no stake in what you're talking about mm-hmm. and things like that. But with these documentaries, they have to come from a deeply personal place. And so they almost don't want an objective reporter yes, in that sense. Yes, and that, that right? that's actually the goal, and they, yeah. they sort of lay that on the table with the, the doc project. So I was trying to think, what Canadian story can I tell? And around this time, a young man, 24-year-old Nazareno Tassone, he's from Niagara Falls, died fighting ISIS with the YPG. That's the Kurdish militia in Syria. And I remembered back to a time when I was going to join the YPG, and I knew another Canadian had died the year before that fighting for the YPG against ISIS. And I said, okay, this is the Canadian story I can tell because they haven't really done anything long form on this. Uh, they definitely haven't done anything on the radio for this. So this is what I can do. And I pitched it to them. They loved it. They said, this is a story that's interesting. It's got high stakes. It's got great interview subjects and you have a personal angle to it. So everything worked out amazingly well. Everything worked out just even better than I could have anticipated. It just worked out very well. And I heard that some people around the CBC building were saying it's the best documentary they've heard in a while. Normally, I try and be kind of self-deprecating and kind of humble, but I was like, I can see that because just everything went <laughs> everything went my no, way. I know what you mean. So I, I was, uh, just to get, get a little bit more into this, I was going to join the YPG in Syria. I was going to ask you about that. Yes. That's an interesting motivation to have. Exactly. So in... 2014, 2015, I was reading a lot about Canadians joining ISIS, and that seemed to be something a lot of journalists were focusing on. And they were writing long-form, in-depth pieces on this. Why would Canadians want to join a jihadist group, especially if they, you know, weren't born or raised Muslim? Like, what what is attracting them to this genocidal army in the Middle East and uh, terrorist organization? And I thought to myself, if there are Canadians joining ISIS... There must also be Canadians who are going to the Middle East to fight ISIS. Just as there were Canadians who fought for v- in, in the Vietnam War. Yes, and things like the Spanish Civil War. There are a yes. lot of historical sort of parallels here. And sure enough, there were. I heard about the Canadians joining the Peshmerga in Iraq, the Kurdish forces there, and the YPG in Syria. Okay, well, I, I was in the military, but I never went overseas. I never saw combat. So this is my chance. This is my chance to prove myself. And... Even more importantly than that, those sort of selfish reasons, I thought it was so obvious that the Kurds were the good guys and ISIS were the bad guys, just if you looked at it. So I was talking about this at the Gazette office, that's the student newspaper at Western, and a young lady who I disagreed with often said, there's no difference between Canadians who joined ISIS and Canadians who joined the Kurds. They're both just as bad. If there's one thing I hate, it's moral relativism. I am very skeptical of anybody who says just as bad. I said, look, ISIS is going out of its way to commit genocide against ethnic and religious minorities in the Middle East. And that was happening at that time against the Yazidi people in in Iraq. And the Kurds are going out of their way to protect these people. Like it does not have strategic advantage to them, but they're going out of their way, sacrificing their soldiers to prevent this slaughter. And I said, you cannot draw a moral equivalence there. That whole conversation only increased my motivation to go. And I thought if there's this stark moral contrast happening in the Middle East, 
I think I have an ethical and moral obligation to fight on behalf of the good guys, especially if I have these military skills and this military experience, right? I can do this. So long story short, though, you did not go. I did not go. Okay. No, I I have not. I have not seen combat in the Middle East, but there are Canadians who have. And I said, well, if I didn't go, the very least I can do is tell their stories that haven't been told Mm -hmm. to the whole country. And that's the power of of radio, right? I, I could tell this Canadian story to the whole country through our public broadcasters. That's what I did. And I was I was very happy they gave me the opportunity and, and that they liked my pitch. I didn't I thought they might not accept it, to be honest. I thought they might say, uh, this is too violent or we're afraid this is going to end up being a recruiting ad for the YPG. But it didn't turn out that way. So I'm, I'm very happy about that. We've been very critical of the CBC on this program. We've actually interviewed Brian Lilly, who wrote uh, yep. the book <laughs> Chastising the CBC, quite rightly. But to give CBC its due... I've also dealt with them when I was a school board trustee, and they were the most professional people I've ever dealt with as a news organization. Of course, it's hard not to be so professional when you've got billions of dollars at your beck and call. But Some of which now went to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. It's going to the right person. Thank you. The very fact that I was listening to CBC, because in the morning they play something called um, Rewind, and they bring up some very good shows from their past, going back all the way to the 50s. Uh, and then following that, I think you came on and, and it struck me. What did, what's your experience with the CBC as, as a group of professional journalists? I used to think public broadcasting was the same thing as commercial broadcasting, just paid for with public money. Like a lot of people, I wondered, well, then why do we have this, right? If, if the private sector is already serving this, why are we paying taxpayer money a billion dollars to get the same thing? But then I realized I can't say this for TV, but I can definitely say this for radio. It's not the same. It's it's very different. Something like this documentary, it's not going to air on AM 980 or CJBK, right? They do hard news. They, do, they don't necessarily go in depth. And that's the opportunity that CBC Radio offers. And that's why I've become more supportive of public broadcasting over, over time, because I can tell these long-form in-depth stories that I want to tell. I'm not a hard news guy. I've really become more supportive of public broadcasting over time. I'm sorry, you guys. But, That's quite well, all right. Yeah. You know, there's public broadcasting and there's taxpayer-funded broadcasting. Like, we consider ourselves a public broadcaster in that sense. Mm-hmm. I consider CHRW a public broadcaster. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and to some degree, the CBC, were it not taxpayer-funded, wouldn't private broadcasting fill in that gap and, and do the same thing? Because the CBC is really hogging that whole market, isn't yeah. it? One thing I've learned as a journalist in my brief time as a journalist is as depressing as this is, what's popular is not the same as what's important. So once you start working at an organization, you get access to all the metrics, right? How many people are clicking on a story? How many people are listening to a story? Your most clickbaity pieces that are unnecessarily politically inflammatory, you'll notice people are flocking to them, but they're also complaining about them in the comments, right? They're saying this is clickbait. Or this isn't really that important, but they're reading it and mm-hmm. it's, it's very strange. So I think commercial for-profit media is in this weird position of needing to chase clicks to sell yeah, advertisers. I understand why they need mm-hmm. to do it, but people aren't necessarily getting that sort of important information. And I think that's a bad situation for the media to be in. Just on that note, I don't necessarily think all media and journalism is going to be public, but I think eventually we're going to reach a point where all media and journalism is is nonprofit. If you do an investigative piece, like, uh, have you guys seen Spotlight, the movie? Uh, no. I haven't it's about the Boston Globe's Pulitzer Prize investigation into um, Catholic priest sexual abuse. Um, 
And I remember reading an opinion piece about that. And somebody said, how much revenue would this get the Boston Globe today versus how much did they pay into it? And the answer is not very much. So them doing this, this journalism was really kind of a public service. They did not make money doing it, even though they're a for-profit institution. So that makes me think something's going to have to change down the line. So I'm very grateful that we have a public broadcaster that we can, we're able to do this sort of journalism. I don't necessarily think it's as good as NPR in the States or the BBC in, in Britain, but the BBC is like the gold standard of, of good public broadcasting. My favorite example of this is The Agenda with Steve Pakin. Have you guys mm-hmm. that show? Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, oh, yeah, we yell at him all the time. I see. <laughs> but uh, that, sh- that show is really what got me interested in public policy, right, and, and thinking about these issues. How many viewers does it get? How many podcast listens does it get? I bet it's <laughs> Very few. I think yeah. we get more. We've actually chided him, and not us personally, but our friends have chided him and sent him emails regarding their their personal YouTube videos and yeah. TVO's videos and finding out that TVO's videos get about as many clicks as there are family members for the host. Mm-hmm. That doesn't surprise me, but... <laughs> Five uh, or six. I, I, was listening, I was listening to The Agenda, which is through TVO, public television station, and Steve Pakin's talking about these policy issues. He's talking about universal basic income. You know, should we legalize marijuana? And I, I thought, not everyone's going to listen to this. In fact, very few people are. But it's important at least a few people are interested in listening to something like this and being part of the public conversation. And I think you only get that through public broadcasting. So uh, sorry, I was a little bit long winded there, but actually went in a direction I wasn't thinking it was going to go. Not that we don't. uh, um, Well, we do disagree with your opinion about uh, having a national broadcaster paid for by taxpayers money. For us, it's it's a funding issue. For us, it's not the purview of the government to do it. However, we have it. And, and again, we disagree, I think, about funding and journalistic stance, political stance. But that's about it. I mean, mind you, that's about everything. <laughs> well, I thought Maxime Bernier had an interesting proposal during his campaign for conservative leader. He said, I, I don't necessarily want the CBC to go away. I want it to change its funding model. Mm-hmm. I want it to be part donor funded. Now, you brought up public. NPR. NPR down in the, uh, the United States has a different funding model. Yes. That's something that we could actually probably get behind. As a matter of fact, we had a one guest on, Yaron Brook of the Ayn Rand Institute, yeah. who said, you're very NPR-esque. <laughs> that was when we were at <laughs> well, CHRW, yeah. Anyway, we're going to take a break. And uh, when we come back, I'd like to pick your brain about why a person, you're in your mid-20s, why a person, a millennial, if you'll excuse that expression, would actually join the, uh, the Canadian military and want to go fight against ISIS. We'll be back after this. Hello and welcome to the Ricky Gervais Show with me, Ricky Gervais, Stephen Merchant. Hello. And the little round-headed buffoon that is Carl Pilkington. All right. Now, you uh, probably know me from such works as The Office and Extras, uh, uh, Stephen being my um, co-writer and co-director on those things. For those people who are not so aware of Carl Pilkington, um, he was our producer sort of given to us when we first started on uh, XFM. Um... And uh, you're thinking, well, why are we doing a podcast? It's because I like to be in a room with Carl Pilkington. Mm. You know, like some people go and help sort of chimps. <laughs> Do they? Yeah. <laughs> well, they go to the, the you know, the, yeah, the, the jungles and things. And yeah. how about little sort of endangered Dying species? Dying Fossey or whatever. Exactly, You're yeah. very much the Dying Fossey of the, of the, the, of the Manchester of, scene. Of the, of the uh, little bald mank world. <laughs> and Carl Pilkington is, is an ongoing experiment for me because I've seen him blossom from an idiot into an imbecile. <laughs> and yeah. I, wa- I want to see it through. Look at the way he's looking at us. Look at that. He's got a perfectly round head. Um, and that's why I'm doing this... Um, podcast. Carl, what do you think about all this? Um, it's just, I mean, we are living in that sort of era now, aren't we? Like, you need to 
be able to listen to stuff on demand when you want it and stuff. I know yeah. you, you were, you're not a fan of the iPod in general, are you, or any of the MP3 things? You're concerned. Uh, it's, I'm warming to it. But this is what's amazing about Carl. Even though he's talking about things like MP3 players, computers, uh, iPods, he sounds like he's he was found in a glacier and, and thawed out. <laughs> yeah, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Sort of taught to yeah. speak. We're, we're a couple of high school guys who found him, and we're, taking, we're trying to ingratiate him in the uh, in the gang, trying yeah. to pass him off as someone from the modern day. No, I no. But, but my thing with with iPods is. Now, do we need them? Do you know what I mean? We're, we're living in that era now where we have invented most of the stuff that we need, <laughs> and now we're just messing about. They said that in 1900. Someone actually said everything that's to be invented has already been invented. They what? said that in 1900. And how wrong were they? No, but what, what came out? What, at what point, what was invented in that year where they went, right, that's it now? The 20th century. Think what happened in the 20th century. Go on. Well, planes. Yeah, but is that a good thing? Planes and that. Do you need, to, do you need a plane, really? Wouldn't it have been better if we all stuck where we should be? Instead of travelling about, war, Why? war. Well, look, wars, wars happening, isn't it? Because everyone's saying, "Well, now we can fly. We'll go over there." And so there were no that. wars prior to the invention of the aeroplane. Not like, not like there is today. Right. So, Richard, why would a millennial like yourself want to join the uh, Canadian Reserves? Uh, I understand you were in the Four RCR, Royal Canadian Regiment. Why specifically would you want to get combat experience fighting ISIS? Well, I grew up in a very comfortable background, a very privileged background, upper middle class, I'd say, uh, suburbs of Toronto. And I was reading my dad's history books. And that's how I really started to become a good student in school. I, I didn't do very well in school, but I started picking my dad's history books off, off, off the shelf. And uh, I was reading about this incredible hardship people were going through, not only in ancient times, but, you know, even Pretty recently, Great Depression, you know, starvation was a real threat back then, uh, fighting in the world wars and things like that. And I said to myself, I haven't really ever faced any sort of struggle. Everything that I think is incredibly difficult, I haven't even scratched the surface of difficult. And I was looking for a job at the time I was 16. And my dad said, why don't you join the army? Because you can join at 16. And it's part time. It's, you know, it's not going to take away your whole life. You can still go to school and everything. By the way, I did that. Yeah. Yeah. I do basic training on the weekends. So I applied. It took a long time because, as you guys know, uh, we don't have the biggest military and you have to wait for certain people to get out, wash out. So it took about a year. I was 17 when I finally joined and went to basic training. And it sucked as it's supposed to. Uh, it was difficult. But that's why it was so rewarding. When I look at the reserves, I think there's this sort of stereotype of a soldier as a dumb lug who's not very competent. The reserves were incredibly diverse uh, ethnically, uh, and they were also full of these well-educated young kids. The kids were going off to some of the best schools in Canada. And I said, every, everything people told me would happen in the military or was true of the military wasn't true at all. I think it was the best first job I could have possibly asked for. I can't speak for millennials as a whole. I think, I think there are a lot of millennials like me who recognize that we live in incredible comfort and that's sort of out of sync with how many human beings are living today and how almost all human beings lived in the past. And for me, I felt like there was something wrong about that. Uh, I didn't get the chance to go overseas. By the time uh, I wanted to go overseas, we were winding down the mission in Afghanistan. 
it was strange because the regular forces were so small that people were doing like five or six tours in Afghanistan, the regular forces. But the reserves actually had a waiting list, right? If you wanted to go overseas, you had to wait a long time in the reserves. I left the military so I could focus on school and focus on journalism. But then I saw this opportunity that Syrian civil war, the Kurds fighting against ISIS and the Kurds in, in Syria are heavily socialist. So I don't line up with them uh, ideologically at all, but they're taking in refugees. Like I said, they're they're preventing genocide. They're fighting against this Islamist terrorist group. And that's where I said to myself, I can get this opportunity to go overseas, even if it's not with the Canadian forces. I'm still fighting for good against evil. And I would have no problem with this. So I, I think that was me trying to get that other piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah, I've been through basic training. Yeah, I'm a trained soldier, but you need to see combat in my it's in, view. It's interesting. Uh, when I read about uh, very successful people, one of the uh, motivating factors for being success, successful comes down to one quote. Unfortunately, I don't remember who said it, but it was basically this. You have to be hungry. In other words, you really have to experience deprivation and hard times to have a motivation to be a successful person. I don't know if that's true for everybody. I don't think so. But it was certainly true for a lot of very successful people as they came out of hard times. Did you see that in yourself, that to be a success, you have to experience what's really bad to be able to get to what you think is very successful? Absolutely. And, and that's basically what basic training in the Canadian Forces is modeled after, right? Expose these young kids. And in the reserves, they're almost all young kids like myself. They're 17 years old to incredible hardship, to sleep deprivation. Sometimes you'll feel like you don't have enough to eat because you're burning so many calories. But that ultimately makes you realize you can accomplish anything if you're gritty enough, if you work hard enough. And that's what your instructors want you to realize in basic training. I'll never forget that. I think it's the most important lesson I've ever learned in my life, what you just mentioned. And it was really the military that taught me that. I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm praising myself, but I'm still proud of myself that even as a 15, 16-year-old kid, I sought out hardship because I realized how comfortable my life was. That's, that's, that's fascinating, especially when you see people of your age group uh, maligned. Uh, often uh, mismaligned uh, because uh, they seem to be going to the progressive, Antifa, whiny, bully type of uh, route. And to see somebody uh, from that age group take the route that you did is actually quite gratifying to well, hear. If I could just say something about millennials here, um, uh, Robert, I forget what empirical study this was, but they, they did this study where they asked young kids in the 60s or 70s, so quite a long time ago, what's the most important thing to you? It wasn't that long ago. Oh, okay, I see. <laughs> what's the most important thing to you? And a lot of them said, uh, having a good family and you know having a job that's rewarding. And then they asked kids 30 years on, so like my age group, uh, what's the most important thing to you? And being famous had skyrocketed importance. It was the most important thing for over yeah, half. I think one yeah. of them is actually being a great YouTube video star. Yes, stuff like that. What I've sort of realized is I will admit, I think my generation, I have no qualms about saying this, has an entitlement problem. I really do. You know, our parents, uh, your, your generation younger than Bob and I, our parents actually went to war. My father went to the Korean War mm -hmm. and he only just passed this year. So I grew up with parents who saw... Uh, death and destruction and communism at its worst. And the threat of nuclear or at its annihilation. Best, I should say. Right? My dad <laughs> and the says, threat of nuclear, of course. My dad says, I remember in school, people are talking about, oh, you know, the world's in such a dire state. He's like, I remember my teacher telling me to get under my desk in case. Yes. So I didn't study history. Uh, my dad was actually kind of disappointed in that. But 
I, I think my first education was in history. And that's what I realized is when kids talk about the world being the worst it's ever been and we're in such dire state and I just think to myself, you don't know what you're talking about. That's right, right yeah. yeah. And we have to remind them here on this show about history and deprivation and war. Yeah. And that bring, brings me to this question. The Kurds versus ISIS and the jihadists in uh, Iraq and Syria. Was your motivation to join the uh, WPG uh, simply because... The YPG. YPG, yes. Um, was, was it because you just simply saw an injustice or was it more the uh, what we were talking about before you wanting to get experience at hardship? I like to, I'd like to think it's actually more of the former. I know that's kind of the obvious answer, the unselfish answer. But I, I think what really motivated me was I, I studied philosophy as an undergraduate and uh, particularly moral philosophy. And this just seemed to me at the time like the most obvious like contrast. You have to go fight for the good guys, like I mentioned before. And uh, injustice is a great, great motivator. Exactly. That's, what, that's what's motivated me all my life. That's why we actually come in to do this program. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's injustice. Um, but I, I, I think the experience part of it would just be a, a nice byproduct for me, as strange as that sounds. And not only seeing combat and, and understanding combat, uh, what so many human beings throughout history have been through, um, but also learning the Kurdish language, really putting yourself in an entirely different context and seeing if you can adapt. One thing I'd like to mention is, uh, again, on this, this sort of moral ethical contrast, half of Syrian Kurdistan's population are refugees, internal refugees from Syria. They're taking them in, they're feeding them, they're clothing them, they're housing them. If, if you look at the beliefs of the Kurdish people, this is coming up because the Iraqi Kurds are having an independence referendum right now. Mm-hmm. They're pro-Israel, right? And, and they house Jewish refugees, Syrian Jewish refugees. That really is quite incredible, right? The Kurds are Sunni Muslims. ISIS are Sunni Muslims. But they couldn't be more different in how they, how they practice things, right? I'd say for the Kurdish people, particularly in Syria, their socialist political ideology is more important to them than religion, right? Whereas ISIS, religion is the be-all and end-all, right? This this Islamist view of the world. So uh, I thought that was all very interesting because what they see... It certainly it shows that Islam is not one monolithic thing. No, definitely not. Yeah. It, it, it is very interesting to me that people who join the Kurds for political reasons, because they really believe in... It's called democratic confederalism, their ideology, which is like a, a socialism that focuses on liberated communities, so towns and cities really having their own control over internal affairs, but the wealth is sort of distributed between them. They see themselves as revolutionary socialists fighting against a fascist enemy that's coming to destroy them. And it's interesting how that sort of keeps popping up in a lot of civil wars, that sort of narrative, right? So yeah, I'm not, I'm not a pr- practitioner or believer in socialism. But if it means fighting against what I think is genuine fascism in, in ISIS, then I absolutely support it. What amazes me is this person that you had a conflict over, uh, of opinion with at Western Gazette could not see the prima facie, the self-evident good guys versus bad guys over mm-hmm. in Iraq. That, to me, is bizarre. The very fact that, for example, here in London, Ontario, we saw a group called Pegida, who are, again self-evidently on the good side because they are fighting against Sharia law, female genital mutilation, the subservience of women, the killing of homosexuals. Not that only that, is, they want to see an integration of people coming into the country. Like, yes, an know. assimilation as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they are the good guys. And here we have on the other side people 
like the mayor of the city, uh, the city council of uh, City of London, Ontario, who are calling them racists and white supremacists and genocidal because they're against the very things that you wanted to go over and give your life, possibly, in a struggle that's not really not even yours. No. So how is it that people, maybe, maybe uh, I can pick your brain for your friends and your associates, how is it that people can't see this, what well, we in this room see as self-evident? It all comes back to the word Islamophobia. I think that's such an interesting debate over the usage of that word. For example, you've probably seen the video with Jagmeet Singh, candidate for NDP leadership, and yes. somebody's yelling at him, yes. right? Because they, they think he's Muslim and he wants to bring Sharia law. Yes. Like to me, Islamophobia is not necessarily a word that doesn't make any sense. I think it makes sense to me. Like if you see somebody, oh, they're wearing a hijab, like one London lady went over and and assaulted somebody who was wearing a hijab, uh, a Muslim woman, that is Islamophobia because you don't know anything about this person's real beliefs or how they practice them. You're just going and and being xenophobic towards them. That wouldn't be the one in the shopping mall, would it? I can't remember what it was. Because if that's the one, it turned out that the person who uh, insulted the other one was also a Muslim. (laughs) Anyway, I'll I'll talk about an anecdote. I was at that rally, August 26th, the big one Mm -hmm. near City Hall. And somebody had a sign that said, it was detailing the crimes of the Shafia family. So for those that don't know, the Shafia family killed their daughters in an honor killing, the Shafia parents. And I said to my friends when we were discussing this after, I said, well, the Shafias are in jail. So we're not necessarily tolerating this, right? We're saying this is unacceptable as a society, as a a government. But then my friend said in response, yes, Richard, but the Shafias are here, right? They're in jail, but they're in Canada. And I I thought that was kind of an interesting point because um, Justin Trudeau put out a tweet and he said, it doesn't matter where you're from or what you've done or what you believe, everyone is always welcome in Canada. There's that moral relativism again. Yes. And a a lot of people, I think, correctly pointed out, this is not true at all. We're open, accepting society, but there are rules here, right? There are are standards here and you, you have to follow them. So... I think I understood my friend's point when he said, yeah, Shafias are in jail, but they're they're here and we need to have a conversation about, do we really want to accept people who don't share our basic beliefs like that? Like honor killings are unacceptable here. And I'm just using honor killings as one single issue, but there are a number of issues we need to make clear as a society. Yes, we're open, we're accepting, but this is unacceptable. And, and if you believe this, you can't be a Canadian. And now the Denise Show with your host, Brian. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Denise Show. Uh, As you know, uh, Denise is the girl who broke up with me five weeks ago. It wasn't that big a deal. She ripped open my chest and pulled out my heart. But it's fine. It's fine. Everything's okay. So uh, let's move on with the show. Looks like we got a phone call. Hello? Brian, how you holding up, man? I'm okay. All right. Hang in there, buddy. You the man. Thanks. I am the man. Okay, if you're just tuning in, we're taking calls. Tonight's subject is Denise. Uh, Have you seen her? Has she said anything about me? Uh, Let's take another call. Hello? Hey, Brian. I saw Denise at Friendly's with her parents. The one on Central Avenue? Oh, yeah. Really? Did she look happy? Yeah, I guess so. Good. Good for her. That's great. Seriously, that's really, really good. I can't tell you how happy I am for her. Okay, man. See you later. Okay, good. She deserves to be happy. I'm glad. I really am. All right. Now's the time in the show when I like to give Denise a call and hang up on her. (laughs) 
That was great. China syndrome is perfect. China syndrome. China syndrome is perfect. People can relate to that. They saw the movie. If we get a character out there who looks like Jane Fonda, the audience, we start. We draw them in. We draw them in. Audrey, get casting on this. Find a woman who we could send out as the Jane Fonda type. A Jane Fonda type. I'm going for a little production value. Okay, I'm trying to build a story here. Ooh. A little production value. We can't, we can't use an actor on, on, a, on a story this big. Why not? I mean, what does a reporter do? A reporter reads copy, write the copy, get an actress, send her out there. <clears throat> Why don't we um, get some experts? Yes, analysts. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, a man and a woman. Okay, I want some underlying sexual tension here. Well, we don't. We don't need. I mean, sex. We don't need sex. We've got a nuclear disaster. So no, we no, 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 no. Sexual yeah. tension. You know what I want? The the Greta Van Susteren character. Remember from the O.J. trial, the two of them, the guy with the curly hair, the two lawyers. You want you want those two from the Simpson trial? Of course not. I want the same relationship. Okay, those two, the two lawyers. Okay, he's pro nuke, wears a suit. She's anti nuke. She's attractive, but she's ironic. He's on the right. She's on the left. But she still wants to sleep with him. She does. The audience has to imagine she wants to sleep with him. Better. Dress her in Donna Karen stuff, heels. Okay, I don't want the Birkenstocks. I want her legs shaved, and I don't want some woman in here who's forty-five years old and has decided to go prematurely gray to make a point. I just want to make this work as a news story. Okay. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it is possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample some of our timeless past broadcasts. Richard Raycraft is the News and Spoken Word Director at uh, CHW Radio Western 94.9 here in London, Ontario. And... On this show, we have derided journalism and journalists to no end because of things like fake news, their left-wing bent. And first of all, where did you take your um, instruction in how to be a journalist? Uh, I went to Western University. So I went to Huron College for my undergraduate degree and then across the road to Western for journalism school and graduate school. That's how I tell myself I've had academic diversity. I went from Huron to Western. <laughs> so. And and your impression, based on what I was just spot- talking about, fake news, the left-wing communist, socialist, fascist bent of uh, journalists as a group, not individually, but as a group, uh, your your impressions? The first thing I want to say is I, I read a book from NPR. It was like the official training guide for radio journalists from NPR. National, National Public, Public Radio, radio yeah. in the States. And they have this one sort of quiz at the beginning of the book saying, like, what do you believe about these issues? Like, how, how often do you go to church? Have you ever stepped on a factory room floor? Like, things like that, right? And you, you sort of do a score. And then they say, here's how the average American scores. And here's how NPR journalists score. Do you see an issue with this? And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> the, the contrast was so stark. And I think it's kind of similar for Canada. What, uh, was, the, uh, what was the defining uh, factor there? For example, what did they classify the uh, middle America as versus a journalist? Uh, middle America was much more, first of all, religious. Did not read the New York Times every day. Definitely were more about reading community public, local publications rather than big national publications. I got, I got to remember what the rest of the questions were. But uh, the point was... The people you're going to see in, in journalism school and the discussions are you going to, you're going to have aren't representative of the country as a whole. And you need to be aware of that. You might never truly escape it, 
your own socioeconomic background, but you can at least be aware of it when you approach things. And that's what I try and do in my in my journalism training. And this is a tricky thing, but I remember somebody talking about bias at the British Broadcasting Corporation. And I think it was the ombudsman there said, the BBC does not have a left-wing political bias. It has a left-wing cultural bias. And those are two different things. And I think that comes back to the different results on the quiz that journalists will get versus the general public. So it's not necessarily that they're voting for BBC journalists or voting for the socialist political parties they're reporting on. It's just that they have very different ways that they carry out their life than the people they report on. And that's an issue. How exactly you address that, I won't pretend to know. But that's my personal approach is at least be aware of it and be aware of it in your story judgment and what stories you're choosing to report on. And no matter who the other side is, no matter how detestable you think their views are, unless they're directly calling for violence on the air, you must talk to them. I'm always pressured by people when they say, yeah, but if you were smart, you'd realize how obviously right my side is. And you wouldn't even talk to the other side. And I say, I cannot approach my work like that as a journalist, right? That's not ethical journalism. But I think there's, as you guys alluded to, more and more of that now where people are being pressured by left-wing groups. So they say, okay, well, the, the other side of this issue is so obviously wrong. I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to reach out to them for comment. And I don't think you can do that as a professional journalist. And and I see a lot of that happening. And it, it depends on the role you're playing. For example, on this show, it's almost impossible to get someone from the left to come in to talk to us because they see us as their opposition. But it's not always possible to get an honest opinion coming from, quote, the other side if they perceive you as not being on their side. Exactly. Is, is that, isn't that an issue you're always dealing with? Yeah, absolutely. And so if, if certain people knew that I was on this show right now, they'd say, Richard, I'm never going to speak to you again. But I take freedom of speech seriously, and I tell all my volunteers that at Radio Western. So I have to live that way. I have to practice what I preach, right? And that means never refusing an invitation to go on somebody's show, unless they're, you know, literal Nazis or something well, sure, like that. Of course. Then I would refuse, obviously. But one thing I wanted to talk about, this is sort of aside from the politics, but... In journalism school, I, I loved my colleagues. They're some of my best friends now, but there was a lot of entitlement. I view wanting to be a professional good journalist as similar to wanting to be a professional baseball player as a kid. You can't just want to be a baseball player and practice one or two hours a week. Then you don't really want it. You want to be famous. You don't want to be a good baseball player. And that's different. If you want to be an amazing storyteller, and I, I hope this documentary I put out was amazing storytelling, you have to do this every day, eight hours a day, and you no, you must never refuse an opportunity to go do a story, even if you're not interested in the subject matter. And that's how I really had the most rewarding experiences and interesting experiences in my journalistic career were stories that I initially wasn't that interested in. But I said, I have to accept every opportunity to tell a story that I can. <laughs> that's and how then, I got stuck doing this Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I said yes. <laughs> you end up in these unexpected situations right. where you're like, that that is incredible. And you're exposing yourself to all these interesting new people and all these interesting new ways of seeing the world. And I think that's truly how you grow as a person. Sorry for the self-help book, but that's, no, that's you're, you're the Richard Raycraft method. That's the method. That's yeah. And, the and method. There's, there's too much of people saying, I don't agree with this person, so I'm never, ever going to speak to them. You will learn something from people you disagree with. You just need to talk to them and you need to listen when you ask questions. Mm-hmm. And I never ask questions as a way of shoehorning my opinion in or as a way of demonstrating my knowledge of the subject matter. I ask questions to hear what that person has to say, because I know listeners are going to learn and grow no matter what this person says. They'll, if they don't agree with them, they'll at least understand their perspective, where they're coming from. 
And I feel the same way as a journalist. Now, that's when you're wearing a hat as the uh, impartial journalist. But there are times when you are not a journalist, but a commentator. And then you like are now. Wear, yeah. like right now. So you're wearing a different hat entirely. Yeah. And you do that often? Do you get as much fun out of doing that? Or is that a more sideline thing to you? Well, one thing I tried to emphasize at the Gazette, at the student newspaper at Western, is good opinion columnists, before they were opinion columnists, were good reporters. I have to be a good journalist before I, I start offering my prescriptions and opinions on, on issues, right? right. Listen, I, I'd love to come out with the Richard Raycraft policy book of what I think the government should do, but I'm 25 years old, you know what I mean? I, I don't know anything about anything. There you go. I've already written the book. Don't so, worry yeah, about exactly. It. Well, <laughs> Paul Metz, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll see if a publisher picks it up. Yeah. I'd read it. So, so some impressions then from the instructors at the School of Journalism at Western? This might surprise you. I didn't find them especially left-wing. And if they were left-wing, I found freedom of speech is not as under threat as I initially thought it would be. It's not the instructors you have to worry about at university. It's the other students. And that's the scary part. Uh, The chilling effect that I think is coming over a lot of faculty and a lot of students isn't coming from administrators or left-wing administrators or left-wing faculty. It's, It's coming from the students. I don't know what's driving that, but it's, it's a very scary thing. And Western here in London, Ontario, is one of the more tolerant schools of free speech. So I can't even imagine what's going on at some of the other York University and University I, of I have Ottawa. to admit, I, I agree with you there. Western seems to be an island unto itself, much like the city is an island yeah. surrounded well, by farm fields. And Coulter, for example was allowed to speak at Western. She said some incredibly offensive things. She was actually on our show at CHRW. You had Ann Coulter on your show? We had Ann Coulter on as a guest on our show. Uh, Mind not in studio, over the phone. Yeah. Uh, Before she came up to Canada, just before the tour. But she was not allowed to speak at the University of Zero, which is the University of Ottawa. Yeah. uh, For fear of reprisal from the students. And, um, but she was allowed to speak in Calgary. So Western, uh, for example, uh, again, Jordan Peterson. They had the police come out, Jordan Peterson, yet the room was filled with common, decent people, students all, who uh, gave him a standing ovation at the end of his speech. The way some of the students were talking about it, you'd think that people were going to go into this Jordan Peterson lecture and come out and be raving transphobes and just want to... And it it wasn't like that at all. We sat down, we heard an interesting lecture, we had a discussion, and everything was fine. Yes. So it was all over nothing. And uh, yeah, it was such a contrast between the way student, certain students were talking about what was going to happen at that event and what actually happened. But there's the chilling effect when you have a few malcontents out there, violent, potentially violent malcontents, then you do get that chilling effect. And mm-hmm. people may not want to come and speak at a university campus like and they should. Part, part of the reason I, I got into journalism was, again, like I mentioned before, talking to people I disagree with because it's interesting to understand where they come from, even if I don't necessarily agree. And I think we need to return to a society where people aren't raving mad that other people disagree with them. That should not be surprising to you. There are 35 million people in this country. Not everyone is going to align on every single issue. So why don't we talk about it? And and I think that's the way forward for our society. But as of now, there's a lot of the chilling effect. There's a lot of I'm not even going to talk to these people. I won't come on their show, blah, 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 things like that. And I frankly don't understand how that's going to be the way forward. We're isolating ourselves politically and um, we need to talk to people we disagree with. 
Rick, you'll be pleased to know we've already had some responses. And uh, Simon and Mark have already emailed us in this link to something that was on the BBC News website. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's a remarkable story. Lion mutilates 42 midgets in Cambodian ring fight. That's, that's a, just the headline. That's a hell of a headline. That I mean, makes me want to know more about yeah, the story. Well, that's, what headline, that's what a headline should do. Spectators cheered as entire Cambodian midget fighting league squared off against African Lion. So tickets had been sold out three weeks before the much-anticipated fight. The fight was organised when an angry fan contested Yang Shimoni, president of the CMFL, claiming that one line could defeat his entire league of 42 fighters. Well, the fight was ended, Rick, after only 12 minutes, after which 28 of the midget fighters were declared dead. Right. While the other 14 suffered severe injuries, including broken bones, lost limbs, and they were basically but unable the, to fight. But the anymore. lion wasn't hurt? It would have seemed that the lion was okay. Oh, Good. Well, that's amazing. Carl, what are your thoughts instantly? I mean, you're going to have a, a take on that. See, what's annoying me is I've sent money to Cambodia because apparently they're hungry and haven't got any energy. So what's going on? <laughs> well, it's, it's much easier to, to, to fill up a midget than it is a regular Cambodian. You know, they, mm, they, they're, they're happy on, like on a Mars I'm being cheated a bit. To us. Oh, God. <laughs> Just keep editing. Don't even look at me. Listen, we can't keep sneaking around, okay? I know weather's pointless, but you've got to go back to her. <laughs> Can I at least finish these football bloopers? I can't say no to you. <laughs> I knew it! Oh, Montana, you got to understand, this kid has a passion for sports. It's in his bones. He should be getting me coffee, not you. Really? Do you know what happened in Oklahoma today, Wendell? Big tornado, flattening an entire town. What happened in sports? Somebody catch a ball? Richard, when you were talking about the difference between those people who go into journalism versus the average Canadian-American, what you were describing there seems to be exactly what happened in the last American election when you had everybody from the media, almost exclusively everybody from the media, all the major media outlets and papers being for Hillary Clinton. Didn't even feel and, like we had a media. Yeah, and the polls that the media actually went out and performed telling everybody that everybody's going to be for Hillary Clinton in a landslide. And then yet you had the people who actually walked onto factory floors in Pittsburgh and in Detroit vote for Trump. Mm -hmm. This disparity, you described it basically. Um, your own opinion then about the fake news of, for example, outlets. Now, I don't necessarily want you to disparage people who may be your employers in the future. No, but it's okay. People from they the big, <laughs> big media outlets are, again, self-evidently uh, lying when it comes to the direction the populace as a whole have gone. Your, your impression? Well, I think uh, obviously a lot of journalists, for example, are on social media now and they spend all, all day on Twitter. And I think they come away with the impression that the world thinks like Twitter does. But those workers who are walking onto the factory floor, they're not on Twitter and they're not voicing their opinion about every single thing on social media. Just because they're not on social media doesn't mean we don't have to understand them. 
And that requires work, right? That requires going to them and talking to them. And the media is doing a better job of that now that Trump's elected. But that's not when they needed to be understanding these people. It was it was during the election. I do think the media did a terrible job, but I'm not a Trump supporter. I, I should lay that out. I think he's so flagrantly offensive that I couldn't possibly support him no matter what his policies are. There was one panel discussion on, on CBC television on The National where Wendy Musley asked the panel, she says, so how does Hillary Clinton win this debate? And she didn't ask the equivalent question of Trump, right? And she just said, well, we're not, we're not going to talk about that. How does, how does Trump win the debate? Because that's not even a legitimate option. But it was a legitimate option for the millions of American voters who ended up voting for him. Um, I remember 538, which is the sort of gold standard of, of polling websites in, in, in the United States now. And it was showing its prediction for the election. And it had states like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, all those Rust Belt states in blue. Like almost certainly, right? And I thought to myself, I can see state like states like that voting for a guy like Trump, given his message, right, of of reviving American manufacturing and, and giving respect back to people who feel like they've lost respect. And uh, sure enough, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin did go to Trump. And I know everybody's saying this now, um, and I don't want to seem like I'm some sort of wise seer or anything like that, but uh, I thought a Trump victory was much more likely than I, a lot of my colleagues did. I think. Uh, I, I thought his message was going to be really appealing to people. And well, of course, on this show, you know, even when we were still doing it on CHRW, we had Salim Mansour, who's a big Trump supporter right mm -hmm. from the start. And he was predicting the victory from the first day mm -hmm. that Trump stepped on the stage. And I, I do think Hillary Clinton had a good insight in her new book, which was that the media said, OK, well, Hillary's going to win. So to get ratings, let's focus on the crazy stuff that this guy's saying. Isn't that crazy? I'm a believer that in a political context, no publicity is bad publicity, especially when you're saying things that are on a lot of people's minds, but they are sort of don't feel comfortable expressing because of the chilling effect. But but their candidate is saying it and that makes them feel empowered. And, and like uh, this guy really has a message and he's, he's going to to bring it to Washington. And I think that's essentially what happens. So people, the media outlets uh, exclusively focused on Trump for the ratings. And that ended up helping Trump. And they took it for granted that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Whereas I'm like Salim, I never thought that was obvious. I don't like the word obvious. So many unpredictable things happen that you just can't use that word. And now, I have to say, I was surprised to hear you say you're not a Trump supporter, given how you, we started the show mm -hmm. and you were talking about going and fighting ISIS. And, and it sounds like that, that would be a Trump supporter. Well, maybe. I mean, it's difficult to say because I have Trump supporter friends who say, I don't want us overseas in any capacity. I want all American troops back in the homeland. So there's that wing of Trump supporters okay, well, on foreign policy. And then there's the Trump supporters on foreign policy. They're more like traditional Republicans, right? Like, I, th I think we should be fighting jihadism uh, overseas and the war on terror and things like that. More hawkish. Yes. Yeah, more ha hawkish. And then there's the more isolationist wing of the Trump supporters. But I'd say on foreign policy, I was more like Hillary Clinton. I'm, I do consider myself somewhat of a hawk. I'm definitely not an isolationist. I think we live in a global society, and that means fighting terrorism on a global level. And so I, I definitely broke with Trump in, in that sense. I, I could not disagree more with his isolationist supporters. Yeah, I, I think I disagree with Trump on things like trade. I think trade has been broadly beneficial, but we don't, we kind of take the benefits for granted. And we assume that when we take a more protectionist approach, we're going to have all the benefits, but then we're going to have 
more benefits and and uh, of protectionism and of free trade at the same time. I don't think that makes any sense. So well, that it doesn't make sense because it's not the real situation. That's why we're yes. getting some skewed points of view from various sides, yeah. sides of the media. Yeah. So I honestly uh, can't say I'm, I'm a Trump supporter in in any sense. But yeah, I don't I don't think some of his points are wholly legitimate. I think he was talking about issues that were on a lot of Americans' minds. Has immigration been entirely beneficial? Uh, has trade even been entirely beneficial, right? Are there some drawbacks to it? I think David Frum made these points and, and the crisis in American rural life. And are you guys familiar with Francis Fukuyama, The End of History and, and The Last Man? No. Francis Fukuyama's political theorist, he predicted that liberal democracy is the final form of human government because communism had been defeated and the debate was over and everyone, every country around the world was essentially going to become a liberal democracy. Why is that? It's because when incomes start to rise in certain countries like China, for example, people demand respect. They don't want to be treated like they're idiots if they're becoming more well-educated and and richer. And authoritarian governments do that. So eventually the authoritarian governments topple and then you have liberal democracies around the world. But what I think he missed, and he's acknowledging this now, is that this new system, especially with automation of work and jobs going overseas, it's leaving people behind. And people want respect when they're left behind. And they'll try and get that back through voting in a candidate like Trump. And I don't think the media recognized that. I think that was that was a big issue during the campaign. Do you think that Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party of Canada accurately represent the demographic of Canada at large? I think it's fair to say that they don't. But even then, I don't think it's surprising that the Liberal Party keeps winning elections because, yeah, they're full of really rich people like Justin Trudeau, who I don't think understand certain parts of Canada very well. But at the same time, it's interesting in, in Canadian politics because you have the Liberal Party in the center, which doesn't really have a concrete ideology. But that makes them, I think, a safe choice for a lot of Canadians. So just like, oh, it's the Liberal Party, whatever. But with the Conservatives and the NDP, the media can draw narratives, right? There was a lot of talk about Harper um, opening up the abortion debate again. That never happened. There was talk about Harper privatizing health care in the media. That never happened. And it was a sort of demonization because, oh, he's a right-wing guy. All this stuff's going to happen. And I think the same is actually true of the NDP. You can draw a narrative of socialists who don't know what they're talking about on the economy. And that's not necessarily always true for every, any member of the party. But you can't do that with the Liberal Party, right? They're just the centrist, pragmatic party in the media's view. So that's why I don't find it surprising that they win a lot of elections. Well, it's true, yes. And even uh, the vote totals, when they did get in, were in the 30s, I believe, percent. And Trudeau's popularity rating, I think, was just engaged at 47 percent, which is pretty dismal if you think about it. Yeah. So you would think then, because of the Liberal Party's safe bet, that any, in, in any election, it's always the Conservative parties to lose. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when the media says things, and I'll, again, I'll go back to Harper. Harper wants to reopen the abortion debate. He has to spend time and energy saying, that's not true. Depending I'm not so. going to reopen mm. this debate. And that doesn't get asked of the Liberal Party, right? That's true, yeah. And that takes time and energy. for. They never get asked the tough questions, do they? No, I don't think so. About ideology, about philosophy. Well, there's a there's an NDP candidate in, in town, and I saw him at a, at a meeting for the NDP leadership race, and he said, um, he was talking to somebody else. He said, the Liberal Party is a vehicle for winning power. It is not an ideology. It's not It's not a principled party, right? And as, I don't, I don't know exactly what the word is to use there, as 
unhonorable as that is, dishonorable as that is, it's it's effective, right? And and that's a problem, I think, for the, both the parties to the right and to the left of the liberals, is they have to spend time and energy defending themselves against accusations that the media just assumes uh, of them. And they're not necessarily always true, right? So you being an, a member of the media, do you hope perhaps to steer them in a, a more objective sense and ask the tough questions of yeah. the liberals as the as they do the conservatives? Yeah, I mean, I have great respect, for example, for Rosemary Barton, who used to host Power in Politics on, on CBC uh, television, and she's now going to host The National, because she really grilled, like, the whole time she was host of Power in Politics was the liberal government virtually, right? Um, and she really grilled them, right? She asked them the tough questions, and I admire that, and I'm like, that's the type of journalist I want to be. You know, no matter what background you come from, I want to ask you the difficult questions that the public would want to know, right? And it doesn't matter if you have a central governing ideology or you don't. And uh, that's the type of journalist I want to be uh, in my career. Who was the news anchor from the CBC who just resigned uh, after a very long career? Peter Mansbridge. Peter Mansbridge. I remember when Justin Trudeau was just elected. Peter Mansbridge took his handy cam and followed him up to the uh, (laughs) prime minister's office. And I could never see again a more um, sickly, fawning attitude of a journalist over a prime minister. And Christy Blashford called him out for that in her her column in the National Post. I I remember that video. I didn't see the video, but I know what you're talking about because Christy Blashford wrote about it and said, listen, as as a journalist, Peter Mansbridge should not be doing this. And I, I think that's true. It was disgusting to watch such a high-profiled uh, journalist do something like that, to be so blatantly I, on the side of somebody like that. I think as a journalist, you don't necessarily have to hate the people you report on. In fact, you probably shouldn't. No. But it's it's always at least a little bit adversarial because even if you're interviewing somebody in a congenial context, you you have to ask them those uncomfortable, difficult questions. So my volunteers sometimes say, Richard, I've written down my questions, and this is the most important question. But it's kind of rude. I don't want to ask it. I feel uncomfortable. And I say, you might have to look for a different line of work. This is, this, is not, this is not an industry for the meek. You know, the fourth estate has been given privilege in the Constitution and historically. Set aside even from the average person on the street. They have privilege. And I think that um, it's been abused and... And not even recognized, and but but having you here on the show has given me hope that <laughs> Thank that it will come back. Well, but I, I just want to add one last point, which is you know, for example, Rosemary Barton asks the liberals the tough questions, and if if you're against the liberal party, you'll say, okay, that's great, Rosemary Barton asking the tough questions. But then she'll do the same of the conservative party, and people will say, oh, she's so biased, she's against us, right? But again, I think it comes back to that principle: if you're a good journalist, you're always asking the tough questions, and it doesn't matter who you're talking to. Um, you have to to ask those uncomfortable, difficult questions because they're often the questions that the public wants asked, right, that really need to be answered. So I think that is something the public needs to do a better job of is, is being a little bit less partisan in their look at the media, right? Understanding that this is something we have to do uh, to everyone as long as it's fairly applied to everyone, which, again, is something I don't think has been done well, particularly in the context of the American election. Richard Raycraft, thank you very much for appearing on the show today. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And thank you for sharing your journey into journalism. And be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journalism in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, 
everything will be alright. Chuck? Hmm? Greg. Oh my God, what are you doing in town? Hey. David Westcott. How are you, How are you David? Good to meet you. A bunch of us from the network are doing a panel over at Carnegie yeah, Mellon. Yeah, good, changing good. face of news. Uh -huh. You probably know most of the guys. Uh, Bill, Dan, Morty. <laughs> a bunch of horse thieves, huh? <laughs> you know, I started out with Morty. I gave him the money for his first hairpiece. Actually, it would have looked more believable if you just put the money on his head. <laughs> <laughs> so how's it being back in Pittsburgh? Oh, it's fantastic. We're doing a hell of a show. Great. We'll definitely catch you tonight. Great. You know what? I'd love to see those guys. Why don't we say, uh, meet for drinks down in the lobby, say 7 o'clock? 7 it is. You know, it's, it's great seeing you do so well here. We weren't in town five minutes. We saw you plastered on a bus. Oh, so that's how I got home. <laughs> <laughs>